If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multiamory Podcast. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about consent and consent culture with Kitty Stryker. We'll be covering a lot of different topics about this, such as ways that consent affects our lives that's not just about sex. We're talking about how to create safe spaces uh, or important spaces for people who have violated boundaries to learn from those experiences and things about how to make asking for consent real, real sexy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a really cool conversation uh, with Kitty Stryker about all of this. I think it's really cool that now we've had two kitties on the show. I did. I did and I, I think, did think we that. need a third. We yeah. need a third. Yeah. So yeah. if any of you kitties have a coming in and out. guest <laughs> suggestion. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, so just a, a little bit about Kitty. Kitty Stryker is a feminist writer, a queer activist, and a rising authority on developing a consent culture in alternative communities. She is the founder of consentculture.com, a website that's been running for over four years and is a hub for LGBT, kinky, poly people looking for a sex-critical approach to relationships. And her first book is called Ask, Building Consent Culture, which is an anthology, like a collection of different essays from different perspectives about consent that just came out in October. Mm. You can pick that up. She's also doing a tour, a book tour Mm -hmm. in March about that. In the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This was a fantastic interview. I absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm really excited for our listeners to listen to it. I think we really get into, um, I think, some important topics beyond just the surface level of like, what is consent? How do you ask for consent? Why is it important? But kind of getting more into those gradations and into the more tricky scenarios that I think is um, really valuable. Yeah, Yeah. what a cool letter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially right now with all this kind of surface level talk about consent in the media, it is nice to have an opportunity to really get down into the, the kind of nitty gritty of it. And so with that, let's get to the interview. All right, so we are here with Kitty Stryker. Thank you so much for being with us today, Kitty. Welcome, yeah, Kitty. Yeah, thanks for having me. So your book introduces us to the concept of a, of a consent culture, is what you call it, rather than focusing on consent itself you know, as a standalone concept. And I think yeah. so many of us are used to thinking of consent as something that's strictly associated with sexual interaction, but... Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, how does the bigger context of consent or the bigger context of a lack of consent affect our daily lives outside of the bedroom? Well, I mean, I think I think it's it's almost impossible for us to uh, identify every way that consent uh, impacts us in our day-to-day interactions. Um, thinking about... Uh, when we're in line at the grocery store and someone starts a conversation and how you respond to that is a consent dance Mm -hmm. of whether or not you want to interact. Um, Hugging a a stranger that you've just met at a party is a consent conversation, Mm -hmm. um, even if that conversation is just through body language. So, I mean, I think that there's 
these little ways in which it impacts in a very personal way. Um, and then you have to think, or I think you have to think further about <laughs> things like, you know, dealing with the medical industry or dealing with the prison industrial complex and the ways in which people are allowed or not allowed to have autonomy over their bodies, over the decisions that they make, and why. Like, when is it that we decide that they do get to have autonomy, and when do we decide that they don't? Mm. Yeah, it's, I think that's such an interesting question. I mean, obviously, a lot of people lately have been writing about this subject. There's been a lot of talk online about it and in in-person discussion groups and all of that. And it is, I think you really touched on an interesting part of it there, which is that the kind of the idea that consent can be a little bit like a dance where it depends on the social situation. Like when I go to see my doctor, does he or she need to ask for my consent to touch me to do a physical examination, something like that. It's like, or is that implicit in that, you know, right in that situation already. And then obviously it comes up a lot of times with the ways that we raise our kids and stuff like that. Like, how much autonomy is a kid allowed to have mm. over what they do versus what do they just have to do because their parents say so. Mm. It's, I do think yeah. that's such an interesting conversation around all of that. Well, and I think also, I mean, what about consent as it relates to your doctor giving you advice that you may not have asked for hmm. or about something interesting. that you didn't ask for advice around? I mean, as a fat activist, that's something that I deal with all the time Yeah, where I have doctors who volunteer advice that I did not request Mm -hmm. Um, and as somebody who has dealt with eating disorders my whole life that can actually be really traumatic Mm -hmm. so it's been very important for me to establish my lack of consent very clearly and explicitly so that there's that sense of like you you may choose to keep going but I'm making it very clear that that is not wanted and Mm -hmm. it may impact my decision and on whether or not I see you again as my doctor. And I think that, like, a lot of what we're talking about consent now is about physical consent Mm -hmm. um, and physical touch. And that's an important aspect of it, absolutely. But it's only a, a piece of the puzzle. And usually that piece has happened after a bunch of other pieces have already been assumed. Um, or negotiated whether well or badly mm. th- that are nonverbal and aren't physical touch at all. Um, little things like, is someone leaning into the conversation or are they leaning away? Are they looking around like they're trying to escape? You know, like those are indications of a lack of consent mm. that we aren't really taught to think about or pay attention to. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. I And I mean, to talk about it within a medical context, Emmett, it reminds me of your doctor kind of offering advice about you gonna, having children. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that. Just a, a doctor, especially. Yeah, when a woman reaches a certain age, even like I'm turning 30 next year and saying, oh, well, you should start thinking about having children because once you reach 35, it becomes a geriatric pregnancy. Whoa. And they call it that. That's the medical oh. term for it is a geriatric yes. pregnancy Great. when you get over 35. And like, oh, well, yes. you know, we'll start thinking about you having kids after that time. It just as, as though, like, that's obviously something that I would want to do right. simply because like I'm a certain inevitable. age. Can we call yeah. it a geriatric erection also if it's after the age of 35? <laughs> Let's fucking that absolutely do that. <laughs> 
35, you're geriatric. You're geriatric. Across the board, like regardless of your sex. So, so everything I do now is geriatric. I know, now you're geriatric. Yeah. I'm geriatric you are geriatric. Already. Sorry, right. Jess. So welcome to this geriatric podcast. I'm sorry, I wasn't expecting this is where we were going to go right out the gate. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Um, what was it? You, you mentioned something there um, uh, about... Oh, right. I was thinking about the concept of consent for advice, kind of that un- unwanted mm-hmm. advice. And it is an interesting thing where there's other factors at play there, where it's one thing to get unsolicited advice from your parents or just from a friend versus getting unsolicited advice from a medical professional who is supposed to be in this position of sort of power to dole out, you know, authoritative information in a way that you wouldn't expect another layperson, right? If some random person offers you advice on having children or on exercising, it's like, well, okay, whatever, who the fuck are you? I don't care. But when there is that power dynamic of going to a doctor who's supposed to be an expert, mm. it does add another then, layer to it. Then isn't that an abuse of that power dynamic mm. to question, make right? the decision that we are having this conversation about children, or we're having a conversation about nutrition, whether you ask for it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, like, if anything, I expect even more to be asked for my permission when it comes to my doctor. I'm paying them right. to do a very specific <laughs> service. And like, if they're like, as a, as someone who's been a sex worker, if I'm going to like veer from the path, we need to have a conversation about that because it is a paid service. Mm. Um, right. I can't have a client who's like, oh, I want to see you for a pegging. And I say, or maybe uh, <laughs> I actually string you to the wall and beat you for a while. Uh-huh. How about that? Like, I don't get to make that decision. It's my professional opinion that you look like you could use that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Exactly. Like, I mean, I think it's something that a professional should ask and mm-hmm. be like, so I think maybe this is a conversation that you might want to think about. Is it something you want to talk about now? Um, and if they say no, you write that in your file and you say we're not touching that. So something else that you mentioned that I think is worth pointing out in that example of going to your doctor and that you said, based on what kind of unsolicited advice or how you are about seeking my consent will determine whether or not I'm going to come back to you, whether I'm going to keep you as my medical practitioner or something like that. And I think that actually is a really great analogy for something that we talk about a lot on this show, which is the difference between rules and boundaries. And that a boundary is something that you can enforce yourself. And that example of, you know, any service that we're paying for, we, our boundary is cool. You've, you've crossed this boundary for me. So I'm going to take my business somewhere else, right? That we're, that, that is the power that we have rather than staying in that situation and complaining over and over that this person's doing this rather than respecting ourselves enough to, to enforce to that interject boundary. for a second, also yeah. recognizing that there is a privilege to be able to do that. For sure. Um, of course. People who are on Medicare, for example, do not get to make that choice. And I mm-hmm. think that's also important is that there is a uh, there's a dynamic of coercion that comes from oppression, mm-hmm. um, particularly under capitalism. But anyway, yeah. that's a side note. I just feel like it's important to say. No, that is very no, important. No, it's very important. Say. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the regarding sexual and consent education, um, we're all kind of parts of different subgroups here among all of us. But 
Um, with that, is does consent education need to change for one group versus the other? Like, should consent be a different conversation for someone who is polyamorous versus someone who's a swinger versus someone who's monogamous? Or do all of the concepts kind of link and flow together? Um, should those be different things or should they kind of just be similar common knowledge? I think that they're all pretty similar, mm -hmm. really. I mean, I do think that when it comes to things like polyamory and s swinging, there's sort of a 201, 301 class. Sure, maybe. <laughs> of course. But I think the 101 is the same across the board. And it's like, as it gets more complex, like obviously if you're in a polyamorous relationship, you're not just thinking about the consent between you and one other person, but other people... Uh, your dynamic as a whole group, as well as each pairing or triad or whatever within the group, those all have different dynamics and they have different consent uh, considerations. Yeah. Um, which you may not have with monogamy per se, though you probably do when it comes to your friends and your negotiation about your family and your negotiation around work. So, I mean, like, th those concepts are still there. I think that maybe people hear it slightly differently when they're dealing with a, a non-monogamous relationship. Yeah. Do you do you see consent being violated more frequently in certain cultures than others? Like, it does it occur more often when people aren't like thinking broadly about others? If, for example, like when you have to think about people in the polyamorous community and um, thinking about like other partners or in swinging right. do, do you think that consent is violated less often than maybe in a community of just well it's me and you and that's it i think it's just talked about differently sure um i think that in my experience doing consent culture workshops it's pretty much an issue across the board yeah um the way that people talk about it is different depending on the community. But, um, you know, it's a big issue in all of them. Um, it's as much of an issue in poly as it is in monogamy. Um, but with sort of different stakes, maybe, mm. or different mm. cues. Um, and I think the language is very different. I found that, uh, though maybe that's more of a question of, people who think about and talk about consent, whether they're monogamous or not, and people who don't really think about it, whether they're monogamous or mm -hmm. not. Sure. Because there's definitely plenty of both in both communities. Right, of course. Um, and I think that people who do think about consent, sometimes the issues that I've had in those communities have been more insidious in that they're better at covering up there are consent violations hmm. because they have the language yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and they frame it very well so that a consent violation doesn't look like or sound like a consent violation. Hmm. Certainly. I, I think that it's also tricky too, because I think that in our society and we, we did an episode a little while ago talking about um, cultural intelligence, about just sort of different mm -hmm. uh, cultural differences in, in other countries and things like that. And something that I've found I've learned more and more as I've 
spent more time in other countries is just how very much the kind of uh, legalistic way of approaching things and being very litigious as uh, mm -hmm. our culture is in the United States, that how much that affects also all of our thinking on a day-to-day -day basis in a way that I wasn't even aware of as much before. Yeah. And I think this mm. definitely comes up with consent because we, we can kind of get into this idea that, oh, consent is about essentially like a legal issue, like a guilty or not right. versus mm -hmm. just, right. am I doing this conversation or this relationship in a better way that's making people more comfortable, right? right. We tend to think about it more legalistically, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about, is like by phrasing things a certain way or finding like the edge to skirt along, that you can still not be encouraging like a strong, enthusiastic, hell yes kind of consent while still feeling like, oh, but I'm not violating this line that I've drawn. Right. Right. There's lots of things that are legal to do that are not ethical or moral mm. to do. Yeah. Um, but they're still legal. Right. Yeah. So I think that like people get bogged down a lot in the like, oh, well, is it legal or not? Mm. Rather than like, is this a nice thing to do? Mm. <laughs> like, is this a respectful thing to do? Am I focusing on this other person's autonomy? Am I focusing on my autonomy? Um, and I think that we would do better to think more about that stuff. Because, um, like, a, a really good example is, like, in the UK, where I lived for a while, every time you went to a sex party, everybody was drunk or on drugs. Like, that uh -huh. was just, that was base normal. <clears throat> and coming from San Francisco, that was completely surreal to me. Because, like, we were very much like, oh, no, like, you don't mix these things together ever. It's so wrong. Um, but hmm. it really informed a lot of my understanding about consent because, you know, I was in a different culture and I had to think, okay, to demand that people in this culture follow my expectations coming from San Francisco would be coercive of me. Hmm. So instead, how do I adapt to this scenario? And like, how do I find a balance between what's comfortable and safe for them and what's comfortable and safe for me. And, you know, there's less of that sense of like, oh, well, am I going to get arrested? And more of a sense of like, am I going to be ashamed of myself later? Like mm. there's much more individual rather than uh, legal or, or cultural. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's so interesting because I think that that way of looking at things that we often do in America, very black and white, very legalistic, like, that it is so unfortunate that it also trickles down to the way that we just we talk about violations at all that it boils down to like well is there any evidence is there are there receipts um right would this essentially that i see a lot of victims especially of assault or or anybody who's experienced you know egregious boundary violations or things like that that that's where the mind immediately goes to is like like, do I have admissible evidence, essentially? Not yeah. about what are my feelings about it? What are maybe the other person's feelings about it? What was the whole context that we're in? You know, like you said, like what, you know, what could be done differently next time so that everybody feels like a better human being, that it does kind of come down to this just hard edge, like as though we're going to go to a court of law, essentially. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and I don't think that that serves people who have crossed other people's boundaries either. Mm. Um, you know, because what I see happening with them is that they feel like they are either guilty or innocent, 
and there is no in between. There's no, I fucked up. Um, either they deserve to be banished from the community because they are a bad and evil person or they don't and they need to defend themselves. And like, not only is that bad for victims, it's bad for abusers. Mm. Like it doesn't encourage them to learn and grow at all. Uh, it encourages them to isolate victims even more in order to save face. So, Mm, you know, the article I'm working on right now is like, so your friend's been accused of abuse. Like what, how do you handle that? What do you do? And it's something that uh, I I find myself being like, Oh God, like I'm going to write down my practices and I'm going to get a lot of shit for it Mm. because on both sides, people are going to be like, but no, it has to be this simple binary. Otherwise, how do we know who is good and who is evil? Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I'm kind of like, well, we're all evil <laughs> and we all have the capability of being good. So let's start with that and let's try to be better rather than assume that what we are is innate. Right. Yeah. If it's okay with you guys, I kind of want to hop down to this question because it seems relevant now, which is that, that, you know, I noticed that you did recently write about taking on the work of creating a space for people who have been called out on boundary violations. And I do want to talk more about what that looks like, uh, because I think obviously what we see now is we see everything that's happening on this big media outrage Weinstein scale, you know, and we see that, that of course, there's always going to be a harsh binary that ends up getting produced there. But I'm wondering, like, what does this look like on the personal scale? Like, what does this look like on the day-to-day scale when we know somebody who's violated a boundary, when we ourselves know that we violated a boundary? Like, what is what is holding that space and what do those conversations look like, do you think? I mean, I think that one of the difficulties is that it depends it's different from person to person. There is no one size fits all strategy that is going to work for every person in every circumstance. Um, so like the, the way that I tend to phrase it is try to do the best you can (laughs) with the information (laughs) Mm -hmm. that you have and the resources that you have available. Um, and what that looks like is different from person to person. Um, I tend to encourage centering the victim and their experience and recognizing that even if you and they have different ideas of what happened, they have suffered harm, Mm. period. And that's enough. It's enough that they feel they've suffered harm. You don't need facts. You don't need, because like, again, if you're taking away the whole idea of like a court of law, then the facts don't matter. What matters is the result. Um, and as a person who cares about other people in your community, that's what you want to fix. And that's what you want to help is like, how do I help you feel safe right now? And how do I help make sure that this thing doesn't happen again? And I think that if those are the ways in which you deal with community accountability, again, it looks different from person to person. Some, many, uh, victims do not want to be a part of their, um, abusers healing process. And I don't think they should have to be Mm. Um, in a lot of ways. I don't think that that benefits them um, and can help uh, perpetrate that, um, that power dynamic uh, of abuser victim. 
But I think it's something the community should absolutely do. And I think that the community's responsibility is to say, okay, how do we help encourage you to do things better? Does that mean that we've noticed that this is a trend where you drink too much and then Mm. you cross people's boundaries? Do we then support you by not letting you drink as much? Mm. And like friendly but firmly sending you out of a party when it looks like that's what you're determined to do. Mm. Do we, um, is it a situation where when you're on your own, you become uh, overly bold? Do we need to make sure that you're not alone for a while? Mm. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of making people write essays because that's (laughs) the kind of person I am. Um, And I used to run Kinky Salon London people who had violated a boundary there, we would have them write an essay stating uh, what they had done that was against the rules, what they should have done instead, what they would do better next time, and um, how they were going to uh, make up for their impact. Mm. Um, sort of how they were going to take care of their carbon footprint. Mm. Um, and sometimes we'd have people who'd go through that process and be like, actually, I'm not ready to be at a sex party. Hmm. And I'm like, great, awesome. Like, I'm so glad that we could help you figure that out. Like, no problem. It's not for everybody. You might not be ready for it. Cool. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and not making that feel like, ha, you're less evolved than us, but like, good. Knowing more about yourself is always important and always valid. Um. But I mean, you know, I also have to recognize that, like, in order to hold that space for people who have been accused of hurting people, often people close to me, it involves a lot of fierce compassion that Mm. many people aren't capable of having. Mm. And that's totally okay. Um, I hope to help teach other people how to hold that position if that's something they feel they want to do. But I don't think it's something anyone could ever demand Mm. from others. It's a choice that you have to make. Um, So like for me, um, I, I generally get called in to be the educator for people who have been accused of crossing boundaries. And if they are privileged, I tell them that they have to buy me a Grubhub certificate in exchange for me doing this work with them. And so it's not expensive, it's not out of reach, but there is an acknowledgement that this is emotional labor that I'm doing. Hmm. Um, And I'm getting a practical uh, benefit out of it. And that helps me feel like it's something I can continue to do. That's so impressive that you... (laughs) that you do that just because so many people nowadays are like this person's an asshole they're done i'm you know striking them off my list of people that i ever want to be involved with and the fact that you're creating a space for those that that have done that potentially and who have um who need to learn from it that's really amazing and i don't think there's a lot of that out there so could good, good I on mean, you. Jeez. Sometimes they do need to be banished. Sure. There are definitely some people where the offenses are grievous enough and consistent enough 
and they're privileged enough to believe that there is no way of holding them accountable other than complete removal. But, I mean, being a part of queer community, I see this as a way for people to hurt each other, um, mm-hmm. you know, horizontally. And I, I want to try to help people find a way around that so that they can have that accountability and they can have that ownership, but also rehabilitate. We're not isolating people that need that community. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I don't think that's sustainable. If we, I mean, I, I usually, when I do a consent workshop, I say, Hey, if I threw out everyone in this consent workshop who had violated someone's consent at some point during their life, None of us would be here, including me. <laughs> like, we've yeah. all done yeah. it. And we've done it to different extents. Uh, we've done it in different ways. Uh, we may or may not even know that we've done it. But, like, recognizing that it's not some scary other, but all of us, all the time, who are doing this work, I think helps ground me in realizing that it's work that we all have to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, this definitely are all conversations that I've seen come up a lot, both with, with us running our private Facebook group that we have, but then also with other people I know who run different in-person discussion groups Mm -hmm. of when those things come up of, of, what do we do to try to support everyone in this or do we just ban people and kind of seeing the different ways that different groups have decided to to do that um yeah and i think that it takes lots of strategies i mean you know i'm an anarchist i believe that uh you know multiple strategies is what works Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Mm -hmm. you might be a part of community that doesn't follow a strategy that feels safe for you and it's okay to leave that community or to try to change that strategy. Um, but I think that, you know, um, I'm constantly seeking for a more sustainable way of talking about consent and dealing with consent violations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. If it's okay for me to change directions a little bit, um, I wanted to uh, ask, so have you had any experience you know, actually teaching consent or teaching about consent to groups who who are not already into it. In other words, a lot of the conversations that I've been part of in different polyamory discussion groups and a lot of the groups that I'm involved with online already value consent. Like maybe they'll mm-hmm. argue about what it really means or how to do it or some of these finer points. But there's right. like kind of everyone's going in with the assumption that this is an important thing for us to be thinking about. And I was curious if you've had any experience teaching to teaching about this to groups who who don't who haven't already bought into the idea that it's even important because it seems to me like those are some of the most valuable conversations we could be having, but it's like how do you get like I'm thinking high schoolers or right mm-hmm. kind of people that maybe don't uh, even jugglers. I've talked a lot about <laughs> consent to jugglers. Um, <laughs> that was interesting. continues to be interesting but i think that i think when it comes down to it it is important to everyone but your entry point is different Mm. depending on who you're talking to like if you're talking to um a bunch of juggalos like there are 
situations within the Juggalo community where consent has been violated and it's been a big deal and people have had long like fights about who's right and who's wrong. Um, so that's a really great entry point to say, okay, so there's this big public example, but what about these individual examples, these smaller examples, um, and then helping break it down from something that they recognize into something that they can maybe relate to on a more personal level. Uh, I find that that's usually the best way. Um, I haven't, I can't say that I've ever talked to a group where anyone has stood up and been like, yeah, I actually don't give a shit about consent. Um, <laughs> this does not matter to me at all. Um, mm. I don't think that that's a popular opinion to have. I, I suppose. Think Maybe things are very different for people now. to argue yeah. you know, about what it means. Um, because, like, no one wants to be the person to be like, yeah, I think raping people's toes <laughs> fine. <laughs> right. Like, what's the big deal? But they will argue about whether it's okay to have sex with somebody when they're drunk. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's yeah. important to them that they not be a rapist. Yeah, so. I think that's the thing is, is I, I obviously, you know, I don't think anybody is necessarily wanting, like you said, to stand up and be like, no, consent isn't important. No, like we shouldn't be talking about this. But it, it's always in the more insidious, more subtle ways that the problem arises is in, yeah, like if this person's drinking, can they still consent? If they consented and then they took their consent away, do I have the right to be really upset? <laughs> um, right. You know, like right. those conversations, um, because that's, you know, it is within those gradations that I think that we see more of the issues is, is you know, as I say, devil's in the details. Well, I mean, and occasionally you get edgelords who want to play devil's advocate and that's like a whole different mm. thing. Yeah. Or they're just like, they're doing it to troll and to be annoying. Mm-hmm. They're not arguing in good faith and they don't care about mm-hmm. coming to a conclusion. Yeah. That definitely happens too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Certainly. But I think yeah. generally uh, it's, finding, it's finding the hook. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy, or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping, code M-U-L-T-I. Yeah, I think something that that really struck me with your description about your book um, 
about consent culture was that you feel like a lot of the books out there about it or a lot of the writings or a lot of people talking about it are kind of approaching it from this privileged academic sort of way of doing it. And so you wanted right. to, um, you know, curate something that has writings from a lot of different viewpoints and is a little yeah. more related to real life. Um, and I think, yeah, that definitely seems connected to that, like, find how this connects to each person's life. And so hopefully that would be something that different people reading your book would find, oh, this essay really resonates for me and this one didn't so much, hmm. right? Rather than yeah, only absolutely. getting one voice. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, you know, I don't co-sign to the conclusions that everybody in the book came to. Mm. Like, but I think that that's important is to recognize that we all have different ideas about this. And, yeah. you know, it's definitely, it's been funny reading some of the reviews because people have been irritated that I didn't give them a solution. Uh, and yeah. that, you know, mm. I didn't give them a how-to, never violate consent ever again. And I'm like, <laughs> I wish I could do that for mm, you but yeah. i don't think i can mm -hmm. and if someone tells you that they can i would stay away from them <laughs> right <laughs> because i would be very suspicious <laughs> so uh you know i think it's important like it was important to me for the book to offer a bunch of different viewpoints and a bunch of different ideas and say well here's a way that we could think about this and talk about this rather than um to be prescriptive mm. that this is the way mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah so i want to bring it to something um more on the positive side of things now which is that so when talking about consent something that still comes up a lot i feel like i'm hearing this a little bit less often now than i did whatever 10 years ago or something but is this idea that that asking for consent and worrying about that takes the romance or takes the spontaneity out of things or makes things less sexy. Uh, and I found that for myself, as I've, as I've gradually gotten to understand how consent works in my life and how exciting, enthusiastic consent can be, I found the opposite to be true. But I was wondering if you could share any, uh, you know, examples or thoughts either from your own experience or from other people of how a focus on consent can actually make things be more sexy or more romantic, more fun. Like what's the, the positive side of this? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a dork about <laughs> the way that I initiate sex and flirting anyway. Mm -hmm. So being very explicit and awkward about consent totally works in my favor. Like that's kind <laughs> of the expected, that's my brand. One could say, um, the first time I ever had sex with my partner, I asked him if he would like to have penis and vagina intercourse, for example, <laughs> to be very specific. Yeah. Um, and then I also said, and no is an acceptable answer. Mm -hmm. That's totally fine. Mm -hmm. um, and he laughed at me probably for a half an hour. But <laughs> we did have penis and vagina intercourse, so it worked. Uh, and everyone was happy. <laughs> but, like, I think that, um, you know... I think especially as a sex worker, I've learned a lot of like encouraging someone to tell me what exactly they want me to do to them mm. or to tell me how something makes them feel, to ask them, how would you feel about that? Um, and really, you can say a lot of things an octave lower 
and whispered in someone's <laughs> ear. And it will feel sexy even if you're reading a grocery list. <laughs> so, like, right. I think some of it is performance and performative. Mm. Uh, and by being excited about it yourself, that rubs off on other people. Mm. Um, also, as a sex worker, I would speak up for the fact that it is okay for your consent to not always be enthusiastic. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's invalid. Um, I am of the sort of, I mean, it's sort of embarrassing to say, but like the kind of radical feminist idea that there is no such thing as 100% consent mm. under a mm. white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Mm. I don't know that anyone can ever 100%, no coercion, no back of your mind persuading yourself give 100% consent. I don't know that that's possible um, because we don't live in a culture where that's possible. Mm. Everything else that radical feminists believe, I throw out <laughs> of the window. But that is one thing that I think they are not wrong about. And I think that that, for them, that gives them a lot of fear. Mm. For me, that gives me an interesting starting place mm. where I realize that I can always be wrong. Mm. I can always be wrong. Uh, and it may be my fault. It may be both of our fault. But, like, that's always a possibility. And if I am not comfortable having that process for this person's sake or this experience's sake, it's probably not something I care that much about. Mm. <laughs> so, like, you know, simplifying it, I generally think, is this something I am willing to go to court for um, if I am wrong? Am I willing to take ownership on that level? And if the answer is no, then I don't need it that bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like That it's not something I am willing to put in the work. Mm. Um, if I'm not willing to have a community accountability process, if I'm wrong for the sake of this person, then I probably shouldn't do it. Mm. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's an interesting yeah, I, I find test. that that is, yeah. it, it's sort of a... Uh, very intense way of thinking about it. <laughs> Certainly. But, still very legalistic still, but more for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a good, it's a good check-in. And totally. it's also taught me that sometimes I would tell myself that I was consenting to something and I wasn't entirely mm -hmm. like I wasn't all in. And it's been interesting. Like I've just started dating a new guy and, you know, he's definitely, like, eager for us to have sex for the first time. And I'm like, I'm very excited for that, too. I want us to be sober when we do it. And I want to feel in my gut that this is a thing I want to do right now. Mm -hmm. And if I have any hesitation, I'd rather wait. Mm -hmm. I'd rather neither of us feels bad later. Yeah. So I'd rather know yeah. than... Um, then push myself and say, well, maybe I'll feel more into it once we get started, mm. which sure. has been something that I've done before. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think I all think of us, something we all, have, we all yeah. done. Have, yeah. yeah, definitely. Totally. Definitely. No, I think, I think that is so interesting to internalize that, this idea of, I would just rather wait until there isn't hesitation there. And knowing that it may be, that, do that doesn't mean that you're ever going to reach 100%, no holds barred, no hesitations whatsoever. Um, I just think it's interesting that like I think that we associate this process of like taking it slow with somebody or being willing to wait with somebody or being willing to say no 
as usually being a much more sex negative thing but again it's mm-hmm. this binary it's kind of like either you're sex positive and that means like you're ready to hop into bed on a first date no shame whatsoever or mm. you're sex negative and you want to string them along for three months or however long you're supposed to i don't know what the rules right. are these you're days. like um, using it as a power dynamic or yeah anything. yeah oh, so no God. i think it is so interesting to live within that middle ground which i would think really is just a really good marker of taking care of oneself um yeah which well, is the best and, thing we can do and anyway Carol queen would argue that it is the sex positive thing to do Mm. is to wait until you feel good about what you're doing Mm. um i think one thing that is really sad is uh lisa milbank is a um a feminist online she writes a blog called rad trans femme and uh she's definitely a huge influence on my ideas about consent and one of the things that she talks about is this idea that we think about sex and our feelings about sex in this dichotomy of sex negative and sex positive. But what we're missing is that oftentimes, instead of sex negative, we're talking about sex moralism, Mm. which is this very patriarchal idea of sex being bad. Mm. Um, People who do it are bad. It is a, um, you know, it's slutty. It's, uh, It's something that you just go through because you have to. That's sex moralism. That's not really what sex negativity is trying to get at generally. Mm. Um, But the two of them often work together fairly well to create policy or to get attention in the media. So they've kind of become the same thing, even though they're actually very different. Mm. Sex negativity is a very feminist, female-centered idea, Mm. and sex moralism is a very patriarchal idea. Mm. Similarly... Sex positivity has its mirror, it's sort of, it's a, it's dark mirror side in um, sex as compulsory. Mm, sure. And yeah. that's the idea of like, oh no, it's about sexual freedom. And, and like you were saying about, oh, well, I have to have sex all the time and like I should want to have sex all the time. That's part of the sex as compulsory, which mm. is also something that comes about through patriarchy. Mm. Mm. Uh, that basically the patriarchal idea is this virgin whore, yeah. while the sex negative, sex positive ideal is, you know, basically about what do women want when that patriarchal idea is no longer there. Mm. It's two different schools of thought on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And wow. either of them could be right. They could both be right. Yeah. I think they're a lot more similar than either of them realize. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, and I think they both fall into that trap of thinking that all women are the same as each other. Right, (laughs) Right? yeah. I think there's also that, that maybe the sex-negative ones, that is true for them, and maybe Mm -hmm. the sex-positive ones, that's also true for them. Mm. That rather than thinking that... Yeah, I mean, people are complicated. (laughs) Right, of course. (laughs) That's what I like about, uh, there was a while I was identifying as a sex-negative pornographer, um, (laughs) and it was very confusing for people, but as I started to explain, like, this is why I use this term, is I think we need to talk a lot more about why we use the term sex-negative to shame people, Mm -hmm. um, and why that's a problem. Um, People started to be like, oh, actually, yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I definitely recommend Lisa Milbank's work um online it's amazing she wrote a fantastic piece called the ethical prude i think that that rings some bells that sounds that sounds familiar actually yeah yeah well the ethical prude nice love it (laughs) all right so 
thank you so much. We're, we're coming up on the end here, but uh, for people who want to get your book and to read all these essays about it or who want to know more about your book tour, which is going to be in the Pacific Northwest in March, uh, can you give them where they can find that info and what they need to know? Absolutely. Um, so my website is kittystriker.com. That's K-I-T-T-Y-S-T-R-Y-K-E-R.com. There is a calendar on there. There's a link to the, um, the Amazon page where you can get the book. Um, the book is Ask, Building Consent Culture. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it at IndieBound. Uh, you can review it at Goodreads. Um, Good Vibrations carries it. Uh, Wicked Grounds carries it. Like a few other <laughs> book places here and there. After this book tour, hopefully a bunch of other mm-hmm. book places are going to sell it. Yeah. Um, and then I'm mostly active on Twitter, which is at Kitty Striker. But literally, you can Google Kitty Striker and you will find me <laughs> everywhere. Um, just don't do it at work because I did work <laughs> in porn for a long time. And you may come across some explicit imagery. Good, I, mean, I guess it a- depends on the work that you do. But. Uh, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> also that. <laughs> yes. That's great. We'll also have links to all of that in the show notes for this episode that you can get to through iTunes or Stitcher or on the show page on our website. So we'll have links to all of your sites there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kitty. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. If you'd like to have your question or comment played on the show, you can call 678-M-U-L-T-I-05 and leave us a voicemail. Or you can send us an audio message at the Multiamory Facebook page. You can email us at info at or send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. To support our show and join our private Facebook community, go to patreon.com slash multiamory. Multiamory is created and produced by Emily Matlack, Jace Lindgren, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. Full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. <laughs>